All right. I want to say a very warm and um, just Jesus-filled welcome to you this morning. It is so, so great to welcome you here at Stonesdale Community Church, another great Worldview weekend, and we have an exciting lineup for you here this morning. Michael Spencer's with us and uh, from Ohio, and he does an incredible job of articulating a very needed and uh, timely message for all of us, especially in the, in the current cultural environment. Uh, so um, just a couple of housekeeping things. Um, of course, we're informal here, and I want to say thank you to the food services team. You did a great job this morning, are doing a great job. And then you may find that breakfast is so awesome, you want to go back for second breakfast. And you know what? You were invited to do that. And so um, if you want to get up and you need to move around or whatever, it will not bother our speaker at all, will not bother us. You, you feel free. It's an informal breakfast set up here this morning. So uh, the second thing I would mention to you, I know it, I guess I'm kind of telling on myself here, my age and things. So sometimes as I've, I've, uh, as I've gotten older, I notice that I need to sit a little closer to the screen so I can read the slides a little easier. And so uh, if you find this morning that um, your particular vantage point um, it's not as clear as you would like it to be on your vision thing. Just feel free to get up and move forward, and that way you can see the information on the slides. Um, Mike is such a great speaker and does a great job of preparing his presentations. He sent me the slideshows earlier this week. I looked at them, and then you probably saw I, I, I uh, posted on Facebook. All I can say is, based on the slides, you better not miss this opportunity because it's going to be great. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, if you would just give a welcome to Mike Spencer for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pastor Joey. Well, I am just delighted to be with you uh, here at Stones Hill. I'm grateful for churches like yours that give attention to the unborn um, and, and, and really focus on biblical worldviews. This is so important um, that we are able to make the case for life and to present our case in a compelling manner. I want to um, share uh, very quickly here, uh, by way of introduction, um, a passage of scripture that I'm sure you're familiar with in this church because of your emphasis on biblical worldviews and, and on apologetics. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter writes to the church and he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who, gives, whoever, for, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. The word answer in that passage that you see there on the screen behind me is the Greek word apologia, which we translate into the English word apologetics, which doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means a defense or an argument. So you could rightly translate 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 to say, always be prepared to give an argument. So in a sense this morning, I want to make arguers out of you. Now to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we want to be argumentative. The Bible condemns that. But what I mean is to be an arguer in the classical sense of the word, in the way an attorney would argue on behalf of a client in a court of law, where he or she would present good reasons to believe that his or her client was innocent. That, that's what we're doing as followers of Christ when we present the gospel, when we defend the unborn. We're presenting good reasons to believe that our case is a compelling case, that our case is the right case, that it's the right one. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go kind of at mock speed here this morning. Um, I often ha have people in my audiences complain that I talk too fast. That's not the problem. They listen too slow. 
So we are going to go fast this morning, but I think, you'll, um, I think you'll enjoy this and benefit from this. What we're going to do is a little bit different than what I normally do. Normally what I would do is I would be presenting the case, building the case, if you will, building the foundation for the pro-life case by appealing to basic human embryology to make the case that the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being from day one. And then I would be building the foundation based on basic moral reasoning to make the case that the unborn child is also a whole human person, not just a human being, but a, an actual personhood. In other words, arguing for personhood. We're not going to do that this morning for the sake of time. I'm going to do a little bit of that in the worship service. So we're going to do this a little bit out of order here. But I'm actually, um, I'm actually approaching it this way this morning where we're going to just dive right into some of the popular objections that people put to us. Now, the reason I've skipped those two steps is not just for the sake of time. It's sort of a compliment to you because I realize that in this church, you are pretty much on board already with the full humanity, the full biological humanity of the unborn child, as well as the full personhood of the unborn child. So we're going to skip that step, which is normally a very important step. Again, I will address it briefly in the, in the worship service. So let's go ahead and dive in. I want to share a quick um, uh, tool for you before we get into some specific arguments or objections the other side would, would put to us. Um, this tool is called SLED. It just, it's called the SLED test. SLED is an acronym, just the word S-L-E-D, okay? And this was um, developed by Stephen Schwartz, pro-life author Stephen Schwartz, uh, to illustrate the fact that there's no moral difference between you, the adult, or you, the young person that you are today, and the embryo that you once were that would justify killing you in that earlier stage of development, but not now. Okay, so let me just be clear what I'm doing. I'm going to show you, based on Stephen Schwartz's SLED acronym, the four differences between who you are now and who you used to be in your mother's womb. And I'm going to show you that while these differences are real differences, they are not morally significant such that we can legitimately appeal to one or more of them to justify killing you in that earlier stage of your development. So in other words, these are the four arguments, if you will, that many on the other side will appeal to to justify abortion. I'm going to show you why they don't work. Let's walk through this very quickly. The first one in the SLED acronym, the, the S, is size. So we will often hear from um, abortion supporters, those on the other side of this issue, that, well, the embryo is so small, it doesn't look like us, therefore, we can abort it. Um, so this would be the size argument. Now, when somebody says this to you, uh, you want to be wise, you want to be gracious, of course, the way that you respond. But one way to handle that is to say to them, just kind of in sort of a, sort of a puzzled way, say, well, now, Molly, I'm really surprised that you would appeal to someone's size to determine whether or not they should live or die. Because as you know, men are generally larger than women, but we don't give women, we don't give men greater rights for that reason, nor do we use that as a justification to kill women. Now, Molly's going to look at you like you're crazy and say, ah, that's not my point. And that's when you say to her, well, then what is your point, Molly? Because you're the one, not me, who's appealing to someone's size to determine whether or not they should live or die. Okay? So, um, the second one, so size, the second one, the L, is level of development. So, arguments that pro-choice people would raise that would fall into this category would be arguments like, well, the early embryo doesn't have a functioning brain, doesn't have measurable brain activity, or it doesn't have a, a beating heart. Uh, or they would, either, uh, they would also appeal to things like fetal abnormalities, that the unborn child has Down syndrome or spina bifida or cerebral palsy or something like this. These would be level of development arguments that people on the other side would appeal to to justify abortion. Okay? So when somebody does this, your friend Molly or Joe or whoever says this to you, your response should be, again, similar to the first one, say, now, Molly, I'm surprised that you would appeal to someone's level of development to determine whether or not they would live or die. 
um, because as you, as you know, four-year-old girls, Molly, are less developed than 14-year-old girls. For instance, four-year-old girls don't have a fully functioning reproductive system, but that doesn't justify killing them, does it? Now, Molly, again, is going to look at you like you're crazy and say, well, of course not, that's not my point, and that's when you're going to say, then what is your point, Molly? Because you're the one, not me, who's appealing to someone's level of development to determine whether or not they should live or die. Um, if level of development is the magical test to determine who lives and who dies, who gets aborted and who doesn't, then this guy's life doesn't count. Nick Vujicic, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Nick. If not, check him out on YouTube. He's a fascinating young man. Nick Vujicic was born with no arms and no legs, okay? He has a one foot, a left foot that is very deformed, but he can use it a little bit to kind of waddle around, to scoot himself around. He's a fascinating young man, um, but he's not as developed as you and I. If I were to suggest, well, I think we should kill Nick Vujicic because he hasn't reached the magical level of development that most of us in this room have reached, you would think I was a barbarian, and rightly so. Because we recognize in Nick his humanity, right? Now, by the way, this guy knows how to surf. He's not very good, but he's a whole lot better than me. Okay, and if you've ever seen Bethany Hamilton, the young lady, the professional surfer who was attacked by the shark and lost her arm, there's actually a YouTube video where you can see her giving him lessons and surfing. And uh, he's fascinating. Now, if you have to reach a magical level of development, he doesn't count. Neither does my daughter, Catherine. This is my youngest. We have five. My wife and I have five children, four daughters and one son. Catherine is our youngest. Catherine is 22 years old, but she was born with cerebral palsy. And so my daughter is wheelchair-bound. She cannot walk. She has really no practical use of her left hand and very limited use of her right hand. And at 22 years old, my daughter Catherine functions mentally at about a four-year-old level. So she is severely mentally and physically handicapped. She doesn't measure up to the level of development that most of us in this room measure up to. But if I were to suggest, well, I think Barb and I should have the legal right to take my daughter's life, anybody with a functioning conscience would look at that and say, that's barbaric. Because again, we recognize in Catherine a human dignity despite her handicaps. Now, it's really interesting that when Barb and I will take Catherine out in public to a mall, a restaurant, anywhere, perfect strangers will oftentimes, uh, oftentimes open the door for her. She gets the best seat in the house many times. It's interesting, on this side of the birth canal, my daughter's given extra love even by strangers because of, or be, for the reason of her disability, and yet on the other side of the birth canal, in many, many wombs in America and throughout the world, Catherine would have a crosshairs put on her chest and she'd be snuffed out in the name of choice because we would be told she wouldn't have a good quality of life. Friends, you are looking at the happiest clam in the ocean there right now. I mean, most days. Okay, she's human. All right? Catherine's a very happy young girl. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to think that I'm making the argument that because Catherine's happy, it's a good thing she wasn't aborted. That's not my argument. My argument is... Even if Catherine turned out to be miserable, it would have been wrong to kill her. And in fact, my daughter has suffered greatly in her life, as you can imagine. Okay? So you've got size, level of development. The E in the SLED acronym stands for environment or location. So people will often appeal to, well, the baby's in the womb. That's kind of like the trump card that they will often play when they don't have a better argument. They'll say, well, the baby's in the womb, as if that settles the argument. Which, when you really think about it, is kind of a bizarre argument. That's like saying, well, I can kill Pastor Nelson in the living room, but I can't kill him in the garage. Like, really, where, we, where somebody's located determines whether or not it's morally right or wrong to take their life? Okay, how does seven or eight inches down the birth canal magically transform somebody from a mere human being to a valuable person who now gets legal protection? This is a silly argument. Now, it's more than that. It's a dangerous argument, 
okay? All right, how about the D? And we're going quickly through this here. The D, so we've got size, level, development, environment, and the D stands for degree of dependency. This is another one that many pro-choice advocates will appeal to to justify abortion. And they'll say something like this, well, the baby is dependent upon the mother at least until the point of viability, which is somewhere between 22 and 24 weeks right now. So at least to that point, we can justify um, abortion, right? That's kind of the argument. Well, again, why should one's level of dependency render them disposable? I won't ask for a show of hands, but if I were to ask, how many of you are dependent upon medication? Several hands would go up. How many of you are dependent upon a spouse as the primary breadwinner? Hands would go up. The minors in the room, how many of you are paying your own dental bills, your own doctor bills, buying your own clothing? Your hands would go up. The reality is that we are all dependent upon somebody at different points in our lives, and that shouldn't render a human being disposable. So the, this is just a quick tool that you can use um, to help people. Again, the goal is not just to crush an argument. The goal is to win the person that's putting forth the argument. And this is a good tool to draw people out and help them see the futility of their thinking. Let's dive into some specific arguments. Oh, by the way, if, you, uh, if degree of dependency is, is the, the standard, then these girls don't count. Brittany and Abigail Hensel can join twins who are radically dependent upon each other for major bodily organs. But if I were to suggest again that we should kill them for that reason, you would rightly think I was barbaric. Okay? All right, let me move on. Here's one. But the early embryo doesn't look human. Now, I already touched on this briefly, but let me illustrate this for you because this is a, a popular one. Now, I don't normally encounter people who will boldly say this, this directly. But when you discuss abortion with pro-choice advocates, you will what you looked like at day one, at conception. All right? Now, real quickly, does anybody look at that and say to me, anybody in the room says, yes, that looks like a human being? Any takers? Anybody? Okay, how about this one? That looked like a human being? That's about a six-week-old in utero? Yeah, some of you are shaking your heads sort of like, yeah. I mean, it does look like a human being, sort of, but if somebody showed up at Stones Hill uh, next week uh, or this morning that weighed 150 to 200 pounds but anatomically looked like that and sat next to you, you would think we'd been invaded by aliens, would you not? And if you're single, would you go on a date with somebody who looked like that? My wife did. She married him. Okay, now... But that's starting to look more like we look, so we're starting to see sort of this, if you will, this human resemblance, right? How about this? Does that look like a human being? You should all be saying yes at this point. Yes, okay. And does that look like a human being? No, that is not Pastor Joey with his shirt off. It is somebody with far too much ink, by the way. But anyways, okay, now don't get lost in this because I'm actually making an important point here. What you have on the screen before you are four human beings at different stages of development. And if you didn't know better, now you do, but if you didn't know better, you would think that these were four different species because not one of them looks anything like the other three. Would you agree? But we know that they are equally human in their nature, right? Now, let me show you. Oh, by the way, I want to show you one more picture, but before I do that, I asked if that top left photo, the single-cell zygote, looks like a human, and nobody said yes. The right answer is yes. That's what a human being looks like at that stage of development. Now, you might say, well, that's a trick. I'm not playing any games here with you. We look different at different stages of our development. So the takeaway here is the question is not what do we look like, but what are we? That should be the question we should be asking, right? Okay, let me put this picture up and give me a quick shout out, a yes or no. Nobody's going to be embarrassed. I promise you the room's going to be divided in your answer. Some of you are going to say yes, some of you are going to say no, and nobody's going to have to defend their answer. Give me a quick response to this. Does this look like a human being? Okay, divided room, just like I thought. No, yes, no, yes. What was my question? And what is the answer to that question? Yes, it does look like a human being. Some of you said no. Why? Because you heard a different question, didn't you? You heard me saying, is this a human being? 
And I understand why you answered it that way. Now, why is this important? Well, again, because the question is not what do we look like, but what are we? That single-cell zygote there, top left, does not look like a human being as we think a human being ought to look, perhaps. But that doesn't mean that he or she isn't. Conversely, the ventriloquist dummy before you does look like a human being, but isn't. It's a collection of, of parts, right? So the takeaway here is not what do we look like, but what are we? The other takeaway is this. We have a long history as a human race of defining entire classes of people right out of existence simply because they don't happen to look like us. And legalized abortion is a repeating of that evil history. The only thing that's changed is not the bigotry, but the targets of our bigotry. And I say ours, I don't mean to indict you, but as a culture, right? So again, we should learn from our history. We should learn from our, our sins, our earlier mistakes, right? Okay, let me move to another one. Well, the fetus is just a collection of cells. Anybody heard this? Okay, this is really popular now. The fetus is just a collection of cells. This is terribly misleading. The fetus is not just a collection of cells. I mean, in a strict sense, we could say that about you. You're just a collection of cells. I'm just a collection of cells. But the problem in that sentence is the word just. We're not just a collection of cells. We're a collection of cells that are working together, talking to each other, working, to greater, to working together as an integrated whole for the maturity of, of our own, okay? So we're more than a collection of cells. So this is very misleading. This... Uh, sperm and egg cells are parts of human beings, but they're not human beings. So let me illustrate. If I were to scratch the back of my hand really hard, you wouldn't see it, but skin cells would fall to the ground. Would anybody accuse me of mass murder? Well, of course not, because you recognize those are parts of me, but they're not me. We have an internal essence or nature that holds us together, if you will, that identifies us. Okay, so if, even if you're in a tragic accident of some, some, uh, some type and you lose your legs or you lose an arm, you may weigh less, but you're not less of a being, less of a person, okay? So this is, a, this is the, the mistake here of confusing sperm cells and egg cells with embryos. Sperm cells and egg cells are parts of other human beings, and when those two parts come together, they created you or some other human being, okay? But the embryo is not a sperm cell or an egg cell. All right, let me move on. Here's one that's very popular. I personally would never have an abortion, but I think that decision ought to be left to women to decide, right? You've heard this? We, we often see political um, candidates like this position. Now, they're not, they're not the only ones, but they tend to like this because they think that it's sort of safe ground. They can sort of keep everybody happy. In reality, I think they make everybody angry, but they, they're, this is, they hide behind this, okay? Let me share with you how you can undo this very quickly and help somebody think through, again, the futility of their thinking. And I'm going to share with you a story that happened to me several years ago, and if it makes me look really clever. Those are the only stories I tell. Um, I'm not so clever. In fact, I actually stole this from my former boss. I used to work for Life Training Institute. Scott Klusendorf actually taught me this, and, um, and I'm just passing the baton on to you so we can all do this. When somebody says this to you, I personally would never have an abortion Here's how you can respond. Let me tell you the story. I was in the Dallas airport coming home from a speaking engagement several years ago now, five or six years ago. I was running a little bit late for my flight. I wasn't going to miss it, but I was running short, and I have the metabolism of a chipmunk, and I hadn't had breakfast that morning, and so I wanted something to eat, but I knew if I stopped at one of these food courts to, to eat, one of these food places to eat, I ran the risk then of, of being too late for my flight. So I thought, well, I can't do that. So I thought, I'll just have to forsake, and I'll eat the Delta cookies, right, when I get on the flight. Well, anyways, I get to my gate, and as if God Almighty had smiled upon me and dropped a Dunkin' Donuts station right there in front of my gate. So I, I was like, yes, I can eat. So I ran over, I got a donut, and I, I turned around after paying for my donut, and there were 
about five or six um, bar stool height tables, round, small, small round tables with bar stools, three bar stools at each one. The airport was packed, and the only seat available was the one at this table right here in front of me. Two ladies were sitting there and then an empty chair. And I turned around and I kind of looked lustfully at that chair like, oh, I'd like to sit there. But I thought, well, I can't be a creeper. So I started to walk away. I'm going to go over to the gate. Well, this one lady sitting there says to me, sir, would you like to sit there? And I said, oh, do you mind? She said, no, not at all. So I turned the chair away so that I wouldn't be eavesdropping on them, or at least they wouldn't know I was. And um, I turned the chair around, and this gal's chatty Kathy. She wants to talk. So she says to me, so where are you headed to today? Oh, I said, well, I'm, I'm headed home. Oh, what brought you to Dallas? I said, well, I'm here on business. She said, what do you do? I love that question. And I've got an answer that everyone loves, both sides of the uh, political aisle and both sides of the abortion aisle. I said, well, I'm in the human rights business, and I advocate for human equality. And she said, oh, you're pro-life. I said, yeah. She said, so am I. And I said, I said um, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead. I said, I'm in the human rights business. I advocate for human equality. And I said, and I, I actually advocate for the most oppressed people group in our culture, and that's the unborn. She said, oh, you're pro-life. I said, yes. She said, so am I. I said, oh, that's great. She said, I personally would never have an abortion but I think that will be left to women to decide. So I just asked her, I said, oh, that's interesting. Do you mind if I ask why you would never personally have an abortion? I promise you she's never been asked that question before. So she thought for just a second, and she said something to the effect, I don't remember her exact words, but something to the effect, she said, because I think it kills a baby or a human being or something like that. And I said, well, I agree. I said, do you mind if I repeat back to you your position? I'm going to change your wording, but I won't change the meaning, at least I'll try not to, and you tell me if I've got it right. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Again, she wasn't freaked out at all. Now, her friend looked like she was going to have an aneurysm, okay? She was, like, foaming at the mouth. She was ready to, you know, freak out. But anyways, so I, I said to her, is this your position? I personally would never have an abortion because I think abortion is the intentional and unjust killing of innocent human children, and I think the intentional, unjust killing of innocent human children ought to be legal. She didn't like that. Why? Because I took the spin off of it. She didn't like how that sounded anymore because she realized it didn't make any sense. You see, the only reason you would oppose abortion is because it kills an innocent human being. And if it does that, it shouldn't be legal. If you, you shouldn't do it and nobody else should be allowed to do it either. But she'd never thought this through before. Now, her response was not what I had hoped for. You know, I'd hoped she'd be in sackcloth and ashes, you know, weeping and repenting of her pro-choice views. But she, it wasn't that. She said, well, I don't like to argue about it. Which I thought, well, come on, lady, you're the one that started the conversation. You know, I was like... What the world? But anyways, we walked through the doors that got opens, and when they closed, you know, and so I, I gave her my business card and said, well, listen, if you have any questions, this is what I do. I'd love to answer them for you. You know, you know I ended fine. But just asking people, why do you oppose abortion? Why would you not personally have an abortion helps them understand that nobody should be having an abortion, right? All right, let me give you another one here. And let me watch our time here. Okay. Um, by the way, this begs the question. You beg the question when you actually assume the very thing you need to be proving. Now, how do I know she was assuming something? Well, she was assuming something because she would never use that argument to justify killing toddlers or freshmen in high school. She would never say, well, I personally wouldn't kill my three-year-old, but I think you ought to be able to kill your three-year-old. So she's made an assumption about the nature of the unborn child that she hasn't argued for. She's either concluded the unborn child is not a human being, or she's concluded it is a human being, but it's not a person. She's made some sort of an assumption, okay? And our goal is to help draw her out on that, help her see that. Okay, here's one. I think it's wrong to bring children into the world who will be abused or neglected. Now, this is actually one where we can agree. We can find common ground here. I happen to totally agree with this. We should not bring children into the world who will be abused or neglected. Here's the problem, though. Again, like the last one, this begs the question. It assumes that the baby in utero is not in the world, but that's a ridiculous assumption. 
You're in the sanctuary today, but that doesn't mean you're not in the world. If you drove here in a Volkswagen 20 minutes or a half an hour ago, you weren't driving down the road and going, wow, I'm having an out-of-body experience right now, out-of-world experience. No, you were in the Volkswagen in the world. The baby is already in the world. So I agree we shouldn't bring children into the world who knowingly will be abused or neglected, but what do we do with the children that are already in the world who might be abused or neglected? By the way, we never know if a baby will be abused or neglected for sure. You might say, well, what if the baby's born to, to a, a terrible home? Well, the parents might die and the baby might be placed for adoption. It might not suffer. But even if the baby does suffer, we don't kill people because they might suffer. If that's the, if that's the case, why not kill people who are actually suffering right now? What about children that are being abused right now? Why not kill them? Do you see the assumption being made here? They're assuming something about the unborn child they haven't argued for. Here's one. Don't like abortion, don't have one. Popular bumper sticker, I'm sure you've all seen this, right? Sounds so American, so reasonable. You know, look, we disagree on this issue. Can't we still get along? Well, yeah, we can still get along, but here's the problem with this. This is confusing objective claims with subjective claims. So an objective claim would be a moral claim that would be true for everyone everywhere at all times. So an example would be, it is wrong for uh, uh, men to rape women. Well, that's a moral claim I'm making, right? It has nothing to do with my personal preferences. I'm actually making a moral claim that it's wrong for men to do this to women, okay? Here's another claim. Now, that's a moral claim or an objective claim. Here's an example of a subjective claim, which we would also call a personal preference claim. So an example of a subject or subjective claim would be Mike Spencer likes jelly donuts, which happens to be true. Now, when you think about it, these two claims are equally true. It's wrong for men to rape women. Mike likes jelly donuts. Those are equally true, but they're too, true in different ways, aren't they? One's true for everyone, everywhere at all times. One's true for me, but not necessarily for you. What they're doing, and I, by the way, I'm not impugning motives here because I think a lot of pro-choice people don't realize that, that, that they don't realize what they're saying with this bumper sticker, okay? But what they're doing is they're reducing the moral claim that you and I are making to a mere personal preference claim. But let's just take a look at this. What if the bumper sticker said instead, don't like abusing children to death in their mother's wombs? Then don't do it. That would sound barbaric, right? How about this? Don't like owning slaves? Don't own one. Don't like torturing puppies? Don't torture one. See, all of a sudden, it doesn't sound very good anymore, does it? Abortion is the ultimate child abuse where a child is abused to death in his or her mother's womb, okay? So this is a silly argument. Everybody seeing that? Okay. How about this one? An acorn isn't an oak tree, so a fetus or an embryo isn't a human being or isn't a person. Again, this is one of those that you hear it and you think, Oh, yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe that, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Well, not so fast. Let's take a look at this. It's true that an acorn is not an oak tree, but an acorn is an oak. That's the species that it is. I mean, it's like saying, well, an embryo isn't a senior citizen. Well, no, but an embryo is a human being, just like the senior citizen is a human being. And somebody else might say, well, your pro-choice friend might say, yeah, but we rake up acorns and throw them away or feed them to the deer. We don't cut down the 300-year-old oak tree that's providing shade to our home in the, in the front yard. Well, that's true. Because we value things like acorns and oak trees based on what they can or cannot do for us. But we shouldn't value human beings that way. So yes, a, an embryo is not a human, or I'm sorry, an embryo is, is, a, is a human. An embryo is not an adult. The embryo is not a senior citizen. The embryo is not a, a toddler, but the embryo is a human being and it's equal in its humanity to you and I. So you see how quickly this one falls apart. You guys tracking with me? I know we're going quick, all right? Okay, here's a horse of a different color. This one's a little bit different. 
Um, the argument here is that abortion is really bad because we might kill the next Einstein. Now, don't be embarrassed if you've used this argument. I admit that 20 years ago I used to use this argument. But it's a really bad argument. You know, the, oh, you know abortion's really bad. We might kill the guy that would find a cure for cancer or the gal that would find a cure for AIDS. Probably several in the room have used this argument, but let me show you why this is not a good argument. Joseph Sobran is a pro-life um, columnist. He's actually deceased now. He died several years ago, but I actually pastored a church in Fort Wayne for many years, and I don't remember if it was in the Journal Gazette or the, the News Sentinel, but one of the papers ran his column, and I used to love reading him. He's really good. Great writer, great, great conservative thinker, and a great pro-life advocate, but he, he makes a mistake tactically here. Here's what he said. He said, after tens of millions of abortion procedures, has America lost anything? Another Edison, perhaps, a Gershwin, a Babe Ruth, a Duke Ellington. As it is, we will never know what abortion has cost us all. Now, he's asking a fair question. There's nothing wrong with the question. We've all asked it. But what is the tactical error he's making? Anybody know? You get a crisp $50 bill from Pastor Joey if you get this right. Anybody know? What's the, what's the error that he's making here? Shout it out. Yeah, the others are unimportant. A absolutely. Or... To take this even further, this is confusing human value with human function. It's saying because all the others don't function at this level, this level that would benefit us, Babe Ruth entertains us with hit, hitting homers, you know, or Gershwin, you know, uh, entertains us with great music. What it's saying is that abortion's bad because of what it costs us. But that's not why abortion's bad primarily. That's bad, but that's not primarily why it's bad. Abortion's not bad because of what it costs us. Abortion's bad because of what it costs the primary victims, the unborn. We don't need to qualify it any further beyond that. Yeah, right? So if you, may, if you do this, you go to a college campus or in your workplace, whatever, your high school campus, and you say this to your uh, pro-choice opponent and say, well, look, Joe, I think abortion's really bad because we might kill the next Einstein. You know what Joe's going to say? I think abortion's really good because we might kill the next Pol Pot or the next Manson or the next Hitler. And now you're in an impasse. So you're giving ground away. What, if you argue this way, what you're actually doing is philosophically picking the pockets of your opponents. You're borrowing from their functionalist uh, worldview that says people are valuable based on what they can do and not based on what they are. Okay? All right. Um, here's one. Uh, actually, we were going to dump that slide. Did we, did we not dump those? That's fine. We couldn't. Okay. Um, tell you what I'm going to do. We're good. I'll go through this one. Okay. So this is actually a very popular one right now because of the, facts, the fact that Dobbs, this leaked um, uh, uh, opinion of the Supreme Court with Dobbs versus Jackson, uh, this has been popular for decades, by the way, but it's really re resurfacing now, this argument that if, if Roe is overturned and it goes back to the states and you have certain states that are become pro-life states where abortion is actually made illegal, that women are going to be forced into dangerous back-alley abortions. And the argument that we've been hearing for decades is that five to 10,000 women died from illegal coat hanger back alley abortions every year prior to Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton making abortion on demand legal through all nine months of pregnancy. Okay, let's, let's deal with this. The first, uh, oh, let me share this quote. Leanna Wen is a former um, uh, president of Planned Parenthood who said just a few years ago that thousands of women uh, died every year pre-Roe. She was buying into this narrative that's been pushed and peddled that five to 10,000 women were dying every year by back alley abortions. There's no truth to that, and I'll get to that in a minute, but let's show you how to respond to this. The first thing to, to, to do here, if somebody brings this to you, is to acknowledge that every abortion, every, I'm sorry, every death by abortion is a tragedy, whether that's the baby dying or the mother dying. 
whether the mother's dying from a legal abortion, which happens, or an illegal abortion, every death by abortion is a tragedy. We don't want to make light of that, okay? In other words, we don't say, well, who cares about these women dying? We care deeply, right? Secondly, though, this argument, if you can call it that, only makes sense if you begin with the assumption that the preborn are not human. Otherwise, what you're actually arguing is because some people will die trying to kill other people, we should make it, we should make it safe and legal for those people to kill them. Now, I think everybody would agree, whether you're a Christian or not, that the primary duty of the government or of the state, the, the most fundamental duty that the state has before God, is to protect the weak from the strong. But what this, what this idea, or what this argument does, is the opposite. It says, no, the role of the state is to protect the strong as they ravage the weak, as they kill the weak. This is ridiculous. This is barbaric. Okay, so the objection, by the way, that the law cannot stop all abortions is ridiculous. You know, the objection is, well, the law can't stop all abortions, so we should make abortion legal. That's a ridiculous argument. The law can't stop all rapes, but we would never suggest that we should do away with laws that protect women from being raped, even though we know that not all women will benefit from those laws. Tragically, some women and young girls will be raped. But we still need those laws because we recognize the inherent dignity, the, 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 uh, the, the human dignity in every human being, and in this case, women. They deserve that legal protection. Our argument is that the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being who deserves this layer of protection even if many of them do not benefit from it. Okay? Fourthly, if abortion is made illegal, uh, in some states come June, when assuming that this uh, opinion stands as it, as it is currently written. Um, again, that won't make abortion illegal. I think you all realize that by now. What, if Roe is overturned, what it does is it actually just sends the debate back to the states. But you do have states that have contingency laws or what are commonly referred to as trigger laws, states like Michigan. I don't think Indiana has them. I might be wrong about that. Um, but these are laws that if Roe is overturned, like Michigan will actually be a pro-life state, it will be illegal to get an abortion in Michigan, okay? Um, but let's say that happens. Let's say it happens in Indiana. Let's say it happens across the United States. If abortion were made illegal, it wouldn't force anybody into a back alley. Women wouldn't be forced to have abortions. They would choose them. Now, I don't mean to sound insensitive here. And I, by the way, I'm not arguing that no woman or no young girl is ever forced into an abortion. Some of them are forced by boyfriends, forced by husbands, forced by fathers, by grandfathers. I get it, by grandmothers. Okay, but generally speaking, what I'm arguing here is that if a woman chose to have an abortion illegally, she wouldn't be forced to do it. She would choose to do it. Pro-life author Greg Kokel illustrates this marvelously, I think. He says this is like arguing that if a 30-year-old able-bodied male isn't willing to work that the, and, and the state refuses to put him on welfare, that he's forced to rob banks for a living. You see how quickly that falls apart, okay? So women wouldn't be forced into making uh, illegal abortion decisions. They would choose them. Finally, um, and, and by the way, they wouldn't be going to back alleys to do this. Do you know where they would be going? Doctor's offices and hospitals. I'm not saying that no woman has ever gone to a back alley or that no woman has ever died by a, a coat hanger abortion. What I am arguing is that this is a fear-mongering tactic that has been wildly inflated from the other side. The truth of the matter is, is if abortion is made illegal, and yes, I acknowledge that some women will still get illegal abortions, they will do it in doctor's offices and hospitals, which is where some illegal abortions are taking place right now. They wouldn't do it in an alley. This is fear-mongering. Okay. Finally, the evidence doesn't support the claim. The argument that five to 10,000 women were dying every year by back alley abortions pre-Roe, pre-1973, was pulled out of thin air. In fact, 
uh, this guy, Bernard Nathanson, was an abortionist who performed, I think it was between 40 and 50,000 abortions, later became pro-life. He's since passed away, but he became pro-life, became a great pro-life advocate. And he admitted, he, he was the one, by the way, he and Larry Later, who were the founders of uh, Narrow All Pro-Choice America, um, they were the ones that fed the media the statistic that five to 10,000 women were dying every year by back alley abortions. There was no truth to it. The media didn't check it. Gee, that's a surprise. Um, they just ran with it because it fit the narrative that they wanted to push and peddle, right? When he later became pro-life, though, he said this. He said, when we spoke of the, the, number, of abortion, uh, the number of women dying by um, illegal abortions, it was always five to 10,000 women a year, he said. I confess that I knew the figures were totally false. But in, the, but in the morality of our revolution, it was a, a useful figure, um, widely accepted. So why go out of our way uh, to correct it with honest statistics? So he admitted that wasn't true. Now, some of you are wondering, well, what was the number? It wasn't five to 10,000. Well, according to the CDC, it was 39. 39 women died from illegal back alley abortions. Now, let me be clear. That's a tragedy in and of itself. But it's not five to 10,000 women, okay? It's not, and even Planned Parenthood's own numbers show that the number was under 200. Okay, so this is a bunch of fear-mongering from the other side. All right, how about this one, uh, the rape challenge? Um, uh, we, I, I, no, I'll speak for myself. I'm, I'm guessing I'd be speaking for several of you, but I will speak for myself. I think this is the most difficult challenge that we face, is the rape uh, challenge or the, what we call the rape exception or the life of the mother exception. Let me deal with both of these. I think they're the most difficult, not because I don't think we have good answers for them. Morally, these are very easy but emotionally they're very difficult challenges, okay? So if I'm on a high school campus, oftentimes I will have an assembly in the morning and then get classrooms for the rest of the day where I can field Q&A, but if I don't get the classrooms, they will often set up microphones so at the end of the, at the, end of the assembly, students can come up and ask questions, excuse me, questions then. And I can promise you that almost every time, nine out of 10 times, the first question I'm gonna get is what about rape? Sometimes it's an honest inquirer who just is, you know, they're pro-life and they're just trying to work through what about rape. Sometimes, and I think more often than not, it's somebody that's just trying to trap me. Somebody who doesn't care about rape victims, but they want to exploit rape victims to make me look bad, okay? Either way, I'm going to recommend a two-part response to this for you. And I think this will be helpful to you. So when somebody puts this challenge to you, let's say somebody named Molly says, all right, you know, you, you've been having this conversation with them, you've been kind of dismantling their arguments, and they finally get exasperated, and they, they pull, out, pull out the big guns, and they say, okay, what about rape? What about a 14-year-old girl who gets raped and becomes pregnant? Are you going to force her, as a pro-lifer, to carry that baby to term? She's already experienced this horrible trauma, she's been terribly treated, and now you're going to force her to carry a baby she didn't want. Well, that's emotionally a, challenging, uh, a challenge for us, isn't it? Here's what I would recommend. First part is I would say this. Molly, I appreciate you raising that challenge because you know what, Molly, you are right. Young women and young girls tragically do get raped in our culture and sometimes they do become pregnant and I can't imagine it. Molly, I have four, I'm married to a woman, I have four daughters and I have four granddaughters and I can't imagine one of my loved ones being raped and then only to find out weeks later that they are now pregnant with a child they didn't choose to conceive. So Molly, you are raising a fair challenge. I can't imagine going through that. Now, have I answered her question? What have I done? Let's say it again. Showed empathy. Showed empathy. We've got to start there because sometimes we don't know who's asking the question. Maybe they've been raped or maybe it's a man asking the question who has a loved one who's been raped. So if you say this, well, that's less than 1% of all abortions, that's not helpful. That's not helpful at all if you're the one who's been raped and now has a child against your will, okay? 
So the first thing we need to do is show empathy. And empathy is not a checkbox. There, I showed my empathy. Now I can move on and say what I really want to say. We need to take the time to show ourselves genuinely empathetic to those that are struggling, okay? Now, after we've done that, the next thing we have to do is we answer the question with a question. And we say, but Molly, isn't the real question, how, so, how should a civilized society treat innocent members of society who remind us of a painful event? Should we kill them? Should we give the death penalty to this child for the crimes of the guilty father, the rapist? You know, we are portrayed as pro-lifers, particularly the men in the room, by the way, if we deny even a rape exception in our laws, we are portrayed as Neanderthals who don't care about rape victims and don't care about women and young girls. We're made to look miserably insensitive, not just the men, the women as well. In reality, it's the other side that's being insensitive because what they're saying is we should give the death penalty to an innocent child who gets no day in court, no attorney, no jury of his or her peers, and is treated worse than we can legally treat the rapist. Because the Supreme Court has ruled that except under extreme extenuating circumstances, we can't even give the death penalty to the rapist. Now this is incredible. Now I understand why people naturally have empathy for the mother, the, the primary or the, or the first rape victim, but don't have empathy for this little one because this little one is out of sight and out of mind. And that's our job as pro-life advocates, is to make the case. You see, the question in the case of rape is not how was one conceived, but was one conceived? I don't know any of you, so I don't know the circumstances under which any of you were conceived. Maybe you were conceived by parents who loved each other very much. Maybe you were conceived by parents who fought all the time. Maybe you were conceived out of wedlock, and maybe you were conceived through the violent act of rape. I've got good news for you. It has no bearing on who you are or what your value is. Why not, as John Wilkie in his pro-life book is titled, why not love them both? Why not love the mother and the baby? That's what we do, by the way, in the pro-life movement. That's not what they do, but that's what we do. We love them both, and we do it extremely well. I'll say more about that in our, in our worship service. But, um, so the tragic violence of rape never justifies the tragic violence of abortion. Okay, So be careful with this, because I, I will speak in churches, and, and by the way, I won't be offended if this happens today, but I'll speak in churches, and somebody will come up to me afterwards who's really genuinely pro-life, and they'll say, yeah, but I, I just don't know about that rape thing. Just think about that. There are plenty of people today, some of them famous, who are speaking in the pro-life circuit, who are the product, if you will, I hate to use that term, but the product of rape, who were conceived through rape. And they take great offense to this argument, that you think it would have been okay for their mother to kill them. And I think rightly so, they take offense to that. All right, let's move to the last one here. And I think we're still good on time, yes? Okay. Um, uh, and that is, that is the life of the mother exception. Because we hear, you know, the, 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 again, the rape exception, life of the mother exception. These are the exceptions that a lot of people argue for. Even people on the pro-life side will say, well, I think we need an exception for rape. Or I think we need an exception to save the life of the mother. And again, I understand why people argue this way, but I want to, I, I want to, I want to give you something to chew on here that I, I think will be compelling. I'll let you be the, the judge of that, all right? Would it surprise you if I told you that we don't need a life of the mother exception in our laws? And the reason is, is because we're never in a position where the only way to save the mother, the pregnant mother's life, is to intentionally kill the baby. We never have to do that. Now, let me be clear. There are several life-threatening pregnancy-related conditions chorioamnionitis, uh, severe placental abruption, uterine cancer, uh, ectopic pregnancy, and many others. And we don't want to dismiss this again. We don't want to say, well, that's less than 1% of all abortions. Because again, women die from these conditions. So these should be taken seriously. 
The question, though, becomes, why not do the moral good that we can do? So let's take an ectopic pregnancy, where unlike the uterus, which God designed to sort of grow or stretch, if you will, with the baby as the baby grows, the fallopian tube can't do that. And so an ectopic pregnancy is where the baby lodges somewhere outside of the uterus. 95% of the times, it's in one of the fallopian tubes. And about 45 to 60 women die every year by an ectopic because of an ectopic pregnancy, where the baby um, uh, develops in, in, the, uh, in the fallopian tube and eventually ruptures the fallopian tube, causing that mother potentially to bleed to death, to hemorrhage to death internally, okay? So my argument is that I think we should do the good that we, sh we can do. We can't save the baby. The baby's going to die. We don't have the medical technology where we could take the baby and move it into the mother's uterus. We can't do that. So the baby is going to die. So I think we should do the good that we can do, and that is save the mother's life. But we don't need abortion to do that. We can save her life without aborting the baby. Now, stay with me, because this is going to be a little bit confusing, at least on the surface. What surgeons would do, at least pro-life surgeons would do, is they would either perform a salpingectomy or a salpingostomy. One goes in and removes the baby from the fallopian tube. Now, what's going to happen to that baby? Anybody? Yeah, it's going to die. Because at that stage of its development, the baby can't live outside the mother. The baby's going to die. The second procedure goes in and removes the fallopian tube with the baby in it. What's going to happen to that baby? It's going to die. Why is that not an abortion? Because that's not the intent. The intent is to save the mother's life. It's not direct action on the baby. What kills the baby is not, is not the, the doctor. What kills the baby is the pathology, the condition. That's what killed that baby ultimately. Um, if you want a further handling of this, you can go to the internet and look up Christopher Kazor, K-A-C-Z-O-R, and just type in ectopic pregnancy, and he's got a great article on this it's, that is, I think, um, uh, pretty robust. I, th I think you'd be impressed with it. Um, intention is important. When we judge ethical decisions, we don't just judge the action, we judge the motive behind the action. I'm not arguing that if somebody's motive is good, or if somebody's motive is good, that their, that their actions are always good. That's not my argument. But I am saying that we consider both of these things, all right? So the intention here is, what, is what's driving this. I think we should do the good that we can do. Now, if your pro-choice friend says, ah, so you do think that the mother is more valuable than the baby. No, I don't think that at all. We can't save the baby. We can't save the mother. It just makes sense. The day may come when we have the medical technology whereby we can save both the mother and the baby, and in that case, we should do that. And then the moral dilemma vanishes, doesn't it? All right? Okay. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to stop there, and um, we still have about 10 minutes. Is that right? Eight minutes? Okay. I'll stop there and take some questions. I know we went like fire hydrant, right? It hooks you up to it. Um, uh, went very fast, but any questions, maybe another objection somebody's raised or something else, some other question that's lingering in your mind, I'll do, what I I'll do the best I can here to respond to those for you. Well, first of all, let's give, give him a hand, okay? Well, thank you. Beautiful job. Thank Beautiful you. Job. I know I love to see someone love the Lord with all their soul, body, mind, and strength, and Michael has loved him with his mind this morning. Um, there was moments as he tiptoed through these sensitive issues that I had to tell myself, Joey, breathe. Go ahead and take a breath now, because it's such a volatile topic. Yeah. But my friend, you nailed it. Well, thank you very Beautiful much. Beautiful job. Thank Beautiful you. Job. Well, you know what? I'm just a good thief. Yeah. <laughs> I, I steal from the rich and give to the poor. That's yes. the great thing about the pro-life community right now. We have so many resources available to us. Yes. Um, if we'll just avail ourselves to those, we can be in a really good position to make the case 
in a compelling manner and answer the objections that are put to us, even the toughest objections, in a way that is compelling. So thank you. Well, and I, having interacted with you, I know it's all about <laughs> Jesus in your life. And, uh, and the people, I just want to reiterate what you just said. I don't care how you got here. You're made in the image of God. And he has underscored that this morning. And we don't know your past. We don't know your history. But you have value and worth regardless of the Amen. circumstances of Amen. conception. And that is a biblical worldview. Okay, let's, let's get, this is your opportunity. A great opportunity, a Q&A with Mike Spencer. Anybody? I'm going to run the mic to you. Put your hand up. Yep. And let's keep the question somewhat short so we have a, a plenty of time for everybody. Good morning. Good morning. I just had a quick comment because I yeah. paid a lot of attention to this subject. Yeah. And when you were talking about the number of people who passed away uh, pre-1972, mm -hmm. um, one of the statistics that I recently heard, um, because this has been such a hot topic lately, is also the number of women who died from legal abortions. Yes, thank and you. And that is about 30, and I think... Okay, right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I don't have the exact statistic, but I think you're right about that. Um, women are dying from legal abortions. And now, because of chemical abortions or the pill abortion, we're going to see, sadly, more and more of that. Because in some cases, these women are getting these from other countries where they're being shipped to their homes, abortion by mail, okay? And these women are taking these pills that are only intended for an early pregnancy, and they're taking them not knowing how far along, in some cases, they are, and that is putting them at risk as well as, of course, the baby. So we're, tragically, we're going to see, the statistics right now are between 40 and 50% of abortions are chemical abortions. And that's been a radical change just in the last few years. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Well, and then there are people that are buying uh, these types of abortion materials that are intended for animals as well. So um, they take drugs that don't have the same effect on an, on an animal, but they will cause an abortion in a human. And okay, these, I, I'm not aware of that, but so thanks for sharing. So in any case, they're, yeah, they're dying both ways. The only other point I wanted to make was I have, I, I have a lot of people argue with me about this point, and they talk about um, Planned Parenthood and the money and how, <clears throat> you know, how, what good care they get when they're there. And um, the argument that I always make to that is um, if the federal government were to take the money that they invest in Planned Parenthood and turn it into uh, prenatal and postnatal care for women, uh, it would be astounding the amount of money that could be invested right. in caring for them, even the 14-year-olds who unfortunately might be carrying a child they didn't intend to. Uh, the money is there to help those people, and that's always the question. They say, well, we should, where are all of you people who are supposed to be taking care of them after they, they well, become uh, pregnant? They're in the abortion business. That's what they are. They're, 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 they're liars. They are nothing but deceit. They are in the business of aborting babies. That's what they do. Uh, you know, I'm going to make this point in the worship service, but where are the, why are there ultrasound machines, or I'm sorry, there are ultrasounds. Why are those $200 and free at the pregnancy center? Where are their maternity homes? Why aren't they passing out diapers? They are, in, they are in business to do one thing, and that is kill babies. Okay, so thank you for that. Yeah. Awesome. So another, another good question. Thank you. And by the way, um, next, a week from today, next Sunday evening, May 22nd, we are going to be showing a movie here. It's not even out in the theaters yet. It's going to be coming out. One of the places it's coming out is here. And you're going to see a trailer for that movie when we pray and dismiss this um, first session. Uh, the trailer will be showed here in the sanctuary. Questions? Any other questions? Right over here. Where are we at? Pastor Dave. Okay. <clears throat> Pastor Dave. Thanks. We've been cover covering a lot of these topics on, on Wednesday nights, and I appreciate yeah. your resources. Um, 
uh, represent some questions uh, from the youth. Uh, could you speak to the use of uh, contraception and also Plan B? Sure. <clears throat> well, okay, so um, uh, my position, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not being a chicken. It's going to look like it. Um, my position is this. I oppose any form of contraception that could result in killing an unborn baby. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to get into other forms of birth control and where I'm at on that. But I do oppose any birth control method that could result in killing an unborn baby. So that would be morning after pills, RU46. Uh, 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 the IUD can result, again, the purpose of an IUD is not to abort a baby, but it has as a, as a mechanism in it. It can, it can harm or kill the baby. Um, even, and I, I'm always cautious, and it's not cautious, but I want to be sensitive in saying this, even I think there's good reason to believe that the birth control pill um, can thin the lining of the uterus, which will flush a baby out, which will not allow that baby to implant. Again, that's not the purpose of the birth control pill, and most doctors either don't know that or won't admit to that because they've been prescribing it for 20, 30, 40 years. But there seems to be good evidence, and if you want that evidence, um, Randy Elkhorn has written a, a very short little book, but it's very well documented, very well sourced, and it's just called The Pill by Randy Elkhorn. Now, my argument is this, because some of you may say, well, I think that's wrong, I've looked into it. My argument is this on, on the pill. If there seems to be good reason to believe that it might do this, maybe it's not conclusive, but it might do that, that seems to me to be reason enough that we as Christians should say we shouldn't be using that. So I definitely oppose any birth control method or contraception that could result, that could possibly result in killing an unborn baby. Um, what was the second part of your question? Well, the, well the more, so emergency contraception. Now, there's, you've got Ella, you've got Plan B, and there's, there's a, a, a lot of discussion about the effectiveness of, um, of, uh, of Plan B, I believe it is. Yeah, Ella is definitely um, an abortifacient. Plan B, there's debate about whether or not it's effective in, in, in doing anything, frankly. Regardless, I would put that in the same category. Why would we, as followers of Jesus Christ, who believe that all life is precious, take the risk of using these uh, of these, um, uh, these morning after pills. So the idea of the morning after pill I, uh, is the intention of this is to prevent a pregnancy from taking place. I don't oppose that. But the, the risk or the danger is that it will actually destroy a child that has actually been conceived. So that's why I oppose that. Did I answer that? Nice job. Okay. Uh, we have time maybe for just one or two more. Okay. And we're going to have to wrap it up. All right, so... Um, sounds like they're really listening quickly with you. All so, right, yeah, great. So, all right, so um, let's uh, pray together, and then we'll give you an opportunity to take a break. Um, if you care to, you can watch the movie trailer, and we'll probably show it again in the worship service, and then uh, just uh, kind of recalibrate things and just stay with us because part two is just as good, okay? Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you so much for this morning. We just uh, look to you um, and we just feel like Jesus has been lifted, lifted up here today as we love you with our soul, body, mind, and strength. And that's what you ask us to do. And then, and then also to love our neighbor as ourself. And so um, we truly want to love. And we thank you for the love of, of your love in our heart and our life. Thank you for Michael this morning. And just so appreciate the articulation, the subtle nuancing of these arguments and uh, the, the clear pr presentation of the arguments. But even more, um, we just thank you for um, the love of Christ in and through him today. And I just thank you for his passion, his vision, the calling you've put on his life. Thank you so much for um, 
helping him to inspire others um, to be a voice for those who are rapidly losing their rights if they haven't lost their rights already in the world. So um, now you give us guidance. We want to be a biblical worldview church. We want to see things from your perspective and with your lenses. And we're fallen. We understand that. That's why we need a biblical worldview to help correct our nearsightedness, our spiritual farsightedness. We, we don't see these issues clearly on our own. We need you. So this morning, if there are some among us maybe uh, undecided on a position or perspective on this, I just ask and pray that they would come and they would find the sweet surrender to the um, wisdom of the ages who shines his light on issues such as these. And they would just invite you in for the glory of God. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you so much. Let's yes. Um, just uh, if you're interested, my book is for sale in the um, foyer. But the thing I want you to note about is the sign says $15, but they're actually $10 today. So if you're interested, there's also an envelope or a, a little purse thing there. You can make change and you can write checks payable to Mike Spencer. And that's on that um, sign as well. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take a break. <clears throat> I think this is the battleground culture issue yeah. in America today. How is it that we can trust an organization for whom abortion is such an important part of their business model to simultaneously effectively prevent pregnancy and prevent abortion? The problem in America today is that people simply change the topic. The key to successfully talking about abortion is to try to bring the conversation back to one key question. When you're an obstetrician gynecologist and you're pro-choice, you have to decide whether you're actually going to do those abortions. I believe that being pro-life is the most progressive value that we can have. The abortion industry is most threatened by Christians engaging in pro-life work. Finding that pregnancy center was the only person I had to support me at that time. We need to show the world that number one on our list is our interest in serving these moms. She's got to know when she takes that pregnancy test that her church is not going to try to treat her like the Pharisees tried to treat the woman caught in adultery. As a church, we can't just vote pro-life. We have to be pro-love. 